You're listening to the 4B podcast. In this podcast, we look at Joan Rivers' book, The Village That Was 4B, a magical tale of story and verse focusing entirely on 4B. In this episode, Joan takes us from 2007 up to the present day, well, up to 2019. This part of the podcast was recorded when the two of us were able to meet together. Here, Joan is reading the final part of her book, The Village That Was Formby. Formby, 2007. Forward. The changes described in my previous two books had been a gradual process over many years, which had brought Formby from its farming roots to the status of a pleasant town. And by 1992, with the publication of Formby Remembered, it seemed that Formby's metamorphosis was almost complete and that the greatest upheavals had already taken place. And whatever the future may hold, the changes to come would be minor in comparison. How very wrong that assumption would turn out to be as the events of one short decade finally brought to an end the village that was Formby. The Pine Woods. To continue the Formby story makes the final words of Formby remembered ironic indeed, and therefore it is the Pine Woods which were to herald a most turbulent decade, both environmentally as well as socially. Like most Formby residents, I had always taken our Pine Woods for granted. After all, the local landowners, the Formbys and the Weld Blundells, had planted them at the beginning of the 20th century as a coastal defence from the sea and sand, and they had served as well and added to the beauty of our shoreline. They were a haven for the unique red squirrel colony and a tourist attraction along one of the country's most attractive coastlines. I had, however, mistakenly assumed that the National Trust were the sole custodians of all our woodlands. But in fact, in 1965, it was English nature, an unelected government quango, who had taken over the responsibility of the Freshfield Woods, known as the Ainsdale National Nature Reserve. And it was this body who, in 1996, unbeknown to any of the Formby populace, had massacred thousands upon thousands of healthy trees, creating a dynamic dunescape and to further encourage the conservation of natterjack toads and sand lizards, as decreed by their European masters. This discovery provoked utter condemnation and anger, and a pressure group, Sefton Coast Watch, was formed, which engendered massive public support against the continuation of further planned clear felling, which apart from the terrible devastation, also threatened the precious red squirrels which were so reliant on the cones for feeding. The local press was inundated with correspondence throughout the lengthy battle to save our trees, accompanied by countless heated public meetings. Up to this time, all meetings had been held in camera, with important woodland decisions being taken without the knowledge of any local people. And it was therefore a real breakthrough when Sefton Coast Watch succeeded in gaining access to meetings, making for far greater openness of information. 
at the time of writing, despite almost unanimous public and council opposition to any further environmental destruction and an intensified resolve to halt all clear felling and ensure the remaining pine woods should survive and be properly managed, a question mark still hangs over this most contentious of issues. In view of worldwide concern over global warming, coastal erosion and the uncertainties of climate change, which has already adversely affected many parts of Britain and the world, it would seem only sensible and responsible to exercise caution rather than pursue more deforestation and this must surely be the fervent hope for the future. Our Pine Woods, written in 1997, with apologies to the teddy bear's picnic. If you go down to the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. If you go down to the woods today, you'd never believe your eyes. For every tree that ever there was has been chopped down for reasons because the experts say they got in the way of the wildlife. When you go down to the woods today, prepare for a great big shock. When you go down to the woods today, a chainsaw has run amok and not a tree is there to be seen, just stumps and mess and what once had been the natural homes for lizards and toads in their hundreds. So don't go down to the woods today, you'd much better stay in bed. No, don't go down to the woods today, for you'd honestly think you were dead. Sixty acres of beautiful green disappeared in a terrible scene worse than a nightmare you'd ever seen in our pine woods. Our pine woods update, written in 2000. Again, apologies to the teddy bear's picnic. If you go down to the woods today, it still looks a sorry sight. If you go down to the woods today, you'll see why we had to fight, why Sefton Coast Watch battled along to stop a plan we all thought was wrong and save those trees still standing so strong in our pine woods. When you go down to the woods today, there's hope in that barren land. When you go down to the woods today, that graveyard of stumps and sand reminds us all of what was in store for the frontal woods that shield our shore from storms and gales and tidal waves roar by our pine woods. Now, hopefully, our fisherman's path is safe from the woodman's axe. Yes, hopefully on fisherman's path, the trees will stay by the tracks for a change of tack and personnel brings consultation and org as well for trees and toads and lizards as well in our pine woods. The bay horse, perhaps a subject of much lesser importance, but nevertheless one which touched the hearts of many was the announcement in the summer of 1998 that one of Formby's oldest hostelries, the Bay Horse, was to close for a period of refurbishment, which at the same time would also see the end of its name and a change of title to the Toby Carvery at Formby. The idea was preposterous, but as this was the brewery's national policy, it was considered a fait accompli and despite loud local protest, the deed was done. As I had lived all my life in close proximity to this ancient public house, I was incensed that yet another part of our heritage was to be lost for no apparent good reason. 
and so I began a long and determined correspondence with the brewery. And to my great joy, I was eventually invited to a meeting with the hierarchy. As this had been a loan campaign, and I would be meeting four representatives of the brewery, they kindly extended the invitation to include any one other person of my choice to accompany me. And it was to Major Jim Hersey I turned for moral support. The meeting was amicable and successful, and it was agreed that the name Bay Horse should be reinstated in huge gold letters across the frontage, together with an outside hanging sign portraying a bay horse. July 1999 saw the name return, and happily, the bay horse continues to be an attractive part of our community. Sadly, however, the enormous interior modernisation led to the closure of the working men's bar and in turn to the loss of many outdoor community events, such as the annual conga competition, the summer barbecues and the November the 5th fireworks display. The Bay Horse, once upon a time long, long ago, the Bay Horse was a pub run by old Joe. It was a pretty seedy little inn that only those least fussy entered in. When Joe passed on, his daughters then took charge. The scruffiness continued by and large, and World War II brought forth the flash GIs who poured inside with disbelieving eyes. Eventually, the pub was smartened up, and a better clientele began to sup. Refurbishments then started to begin, and we gained a really lovely country inn. Additions and improvements carried through, combining old tradition with the new. A restaurant beside the public bar brought patrons flogging in from near and far. The bay horse echoed well our heritage, tastefully reminiscent of the age when life in Formby was so different then, when the bay was just the place for working men. But now in one fell swoop we've lost it all. The character, the charm, the whitewashed wall in place the gaudy, glitzy, tatty trash the brewery thinks will generate more cash. We loved our pub and fought to save the bay. We thought a compromise would go halfway. But now betrayal stares us in the face as through the railings stands a sheer disgrace. It really is enough to make one weep that something once so lovely looks so cheap. Those who've done this should hang their heads in shame and give us back the bay horse and its name. Pavement displays. Formby is unique within the borough of Sefton in having a shopping centre which boasts unusually wide pavements, which have traditionally always been used by many traders to display their wares. They have never caused a problem and indeed have added to the ambience of the area. All this changed, however, just before Christmas 1992, when a shop in Southport created an obstruction with an outside pavement display and was instructed by Sefton Council under threat of legal action to remove it forthwith. Not only was this shop targeted, but the ban on pavement displays was extended to every part of Sefton. The decision was ridiculous and caused undue anxiety to several small shopkeepers whose businesses were already struggling against the opposition of new big-name superstores, whose lavish gifts to the shopping centre had so affected the character of the village. 
following my poetic contribution to the Formby Times and the intervention of the late councillor Jackie Gibson, common sense eventually prevailed and Formby was, quite rightly, excluded from this draconian ruling. We shouldn't dwell upon the past or yearn for what has been. We should accept our changing world and applaud the present scene. We must not question what's decreed by those now in command, but meekly we must all submit to what they now demand. No matter that there's little sense or reason to their rules, they are the wise officialdom, and we are only fools. So let them hound the little men, sweep tradition clean away, and mould us into nothingness by the cruel games they play. And let the big boys call the tune, and use us as they will, to pull the strings of those they woo, with gifts for good or ill. Zebra crossing, traffic lights, railings to pen us in, paving blocks instead of flags, and the odd new litter bin. Then having quite transformed us all, wrecked a village with wanton waste, they'll dance upon the gravestones of those traders they have chased. And the big shots tills will jingle, Merry Christmas to you all. But the others see no shining star, just the writing on the wall. Unbelievably, after almost 13 years of peaceful village trading, history repeated itself in October 2005, when once again, council officers, this time accompanied by the police, descended upon the traders, demanding the removal of all produce from outside their premises. The normally vibrant village immediately resembled a graveyard, and just as before, the public leapt to the defence of the shopkeepers, filling the pages of the local press with letters of outrage at this silly charade, made even more illogical when the newly acquired wine and coffee bars, with their frontages littered with street furniture, for which of course they paid a council rent, were unaffected and presumably considered not to be the same hazard to pedestrians as the traders' wares. The whole episode was a nonsense. The council looked foolish and the public uproar resulted in a climb down, which very quickly restored sanity to the situation with the return of the colourful displays to the 40 foot wide pavements. However, within weeks of what had appeared a sensible and permanent settlement, a lorry arrived unheralded and proceeded to once more remove all advertising boards from the shop's frontages. In anger and frustration, some of the more agile traders jumped aboard the lorry, retrieved their boards and replaced them in their rightful places, where they still remain at the time of writing. Perhaps the saga is not, after all, over. The Greenback Scheme In 2002, Sefton Council announced the introduction of a greenback scheme for the recycling of garden waste, following its initial successful launch in Bootle. Selected areas of Formby were issued with biodegradable green bags and a maximum of five bags would be collected each week separately alongside the normal refuse collections. Unfortunately, it would appear that no one had considered the vast difference in the backyards of many Bootle properties compared with the large back gardens of most Formby properties and utter chaos ensued, 
with green bags overflowing throughout the streets of Formby. The refuse collectors were completely overwhelmed by the sheer volume and were totally unable to cope. Many letters reached the press, including the following two poems from myself. Five green bin bags, with apologies to ten green bottles. Five green bin bags piled outside each gate. Five green bin bags there to congregate. Until five green bin bags soon numbered twenty-eight, when no lorry trundled round to every gate. Twenty-eight bin bags full of grass and sticks. Twenty-eight bin bags just like pick and mix. Now those twenty-eight bin bags have numbered forty-six and still no lorry has trundled for the sticks. Forty-six bin bags breeding by the score. Forty-six bin bags growing ever more. Now those forty-six bin bags are up to sixty-four. Still no lorry trundles round to every door. Now each road in Formby is a rubbish tip and each road in Formby is giving us the pip. Someone there at Sefton needs to get a grip before the rest of Sefton mistakes us for the tip. The green, green grass of home. The old hometown don't look the same as I step down from the train and there to greet me are tons and tons of green bags. Down the road no bin men and no lorry. Everywhere looks sad and sorry as we traipse between the green, green bags of home. And whilst I stand and look around me, loads of green bags all surround me, and they seem to be increasing by the second. And down the road no bin men and no lorry. Everywhere looks sad and sorry. Can this really be the jewel in Sefton's crown? Now I'm awake and I'm not dreaming. Down the road green waste is streaming. And I can't believe this really is my Formby. But in the distance there's a Sefton lorry. Now we soon won't look so sorry. Because they're here to take the green green grass back home. The system was eventually regarded a success and plans were made for its extension throughout the entire borough. Regrettably, however, in 2004, following the usual winter suspension and the announcement of its recommencement in early March, Sefton Council encountered difficulties in acquiring a suitable waste site, and once again the scheme ran into problems, which as late as June of that year had still not been fully resolved. In principle, the scheme is admirable and has been welcomed by the public and it is therefore hoped that these troubles will soon be a thing of the past and all will run smoothly. The council offices. Our splendid purpose-built council offices had been the pride of Formby and the only public building of note, but had been grossly underused for many years despite their huge potential for full community use. Whilst Formby had continued to grow, our local government needs had not, and indeed had been severely eroded. We had seen the loss of our social services department as it moved to Southport. Our 1960s public library was far below the national standards for a town of our size. Our citizens advice bureau was housed in a derelict house, and there were no real leisure facilities, particularly for the youth of the district. 
For almost 30 years, residents had campaigned for a swimming pool to no avail. Yet here stood a centrally located building, capable of satisfying all these needs and more. Then suddenly, events took a quite unexpected turn with the shock announcement of the sale of the Browse Lane football ground by the grandson of the original landowner who no longer lived in Formby and whose interests lay elsewhere. There was great consternation as the club faced possible extinction and property developers showed keen interest in the site. For quite some time, speculation raged about its future until the summer of 2000 and the surprise intervention of one of Formby's wealthiest families, the Moors of Littlewoods Pools fame, who bought the ground and presented it to Sefton Council as a gift for leisure purposes. It was a truly magnanimous gesture. Instead of it remaining as the football ground, it was decided that it should be earmarked for the swimming pool and the football ground would be relocated across the Formby bypass alongside the Down Holland Brook, hopefully making the football club's future secure. At long last, it seemed the pool was in sight, but then quite inexplicably, in the autumn of 2000, the local councillors introduced a proviso that unless our council offices were sold for development, there would be no pool. There was instant public outrage. Never in all the years of campaign campaigning had there been a hint of such a condition until this moment and the whole community rose in anger. Public meetings were held. A hastily organised petition showed enormous opposition to such an unpopular move and sound and, and reasoned arguments were put forward for the sale of alternative public assets. Once more, our benefactor stepped in with yet another unbelievably generous donation of three million pounds to Sefton Council, making the sale completely unnecessary. But despite all this, the wishes of the people were ignored, the democratic process was a sham, and the Formby community witnessed probably the shabbiest of deals in its history. Like all other towns of comparable size, it is not at all unreasonable that Formby should expect both a pool and a civic building, and it seemed beyond all comprehension that any other authority in the land would ever consider trading a town hall for a pool. But this was Sefton, and we are Formby, and this was the most ingenious of all red herrings. To the shame of our council, we lost our protest, and we lost our council offices, and in their place now stands an unseemly and appallingly oversized nondescript four-storey block of 85 apartments which every year will swell the Sefton Treasury as no public building ever could. This issue caused more local outrage than any other and left the community with a real sense of betrayal. The local press was bombarded with letters of protest and when the final act of civic vandalism took place in April 2003, a further barrage of correspondence battered its pages. The following are just two of those letters representative of the many, the first one being my own contribution and the second reproduced in full with the kind permission of the writer Alan Nyker of College Avenue, Formby. Endless correspondence has appeared in this newspaper about the undemocratic sale of our council offices 
and no issue ever caused such outrage. The terrible sadness I now feel as the bulldozers moved in is, I know, shared by many. So I make no apology for this final comment on a part of our history which I consider utterly shameful. This demolition should never have taken place. The land and building belong to us, the Formby people, not to Sefton Council, having been bought and paid for through the rates of my generation's parents and grandparents, and neither they nor we bear any responsibility for their deliberate neglect. They were our finest asset, with huge community potential. It is a well-known fact that wise planning for the future requires a sound knowledge and understanding of the past, and sadly, none of our councillors appeared to know or care enough about Formby's past or have any real vision for the future. Their total disregard of massive public opinion and repeated claims of being unable to wield any sort of power over local issues only frustrated those they represented and seemed the weakest of excuses. There was absolutely no need whatsoever for this dreadful act of civic vandalism and if those councillors are remembered for anything at all in the future, it will surely be for this. The whole episode has been disgraceful and speaks volumes about local democracy, which, like our council offices, lies in ruins. And the second letter from Alan Nyker. Despite the wishes and needs of the local population, we have this week been treated to the disgraceful sight of Formby council offices being demolished, not in the name of progress, but to further Sefton's rather obvious plan to turn the whole of Formby into a council tax farm. The revenue from the sale of the site and the prospect of another 80 plus council taxpayers was obviously too difficult to resist and our elected councillors totally ineffective in reflecting local priorities. In order that our loss may not be forgotten, I would suggest that Sefton Council spend some of their revenue upon a memorial to the building which reflects the part of their planning department and of our councillors. A bronze statue of a braying jackass mounted by the figure of a builder with a sledgehammer in one hand and a cash bag in the other would be appropriate. It could have the inscription, with apologies to war memorials, their shame liveth forevermore. Our thanks are due to local petitioners who proposed practical solutions which would have retained a fine building and who proved that there are at least some people left who have the needs and interests of this community at heart. As a final comment, it is probably the biggest irony that our former council offices in Moorhouse Buildings, Church Road, still stand, albeit in the guise of a fish and chip shop, whilst the new superbly custom-built replacement deemed so necessary in 1927 by the men of vision who ran our council and which would have stood forever, has been smashed to the ground. The luxury apartments are now completed and have been named Hillary Court in honour of the man who established Britain's life, first lifeboat station here in Formby in 1776. However, it would seem he did not. According to the well-researched and authoritative book Britain's First Lifeboat Station by R and B York. That particular honour goes to William Hutchinson and not to William Hillary, who was responsible for the station on the Isle of Man.
an unfortunate mistake, but perhaps not of such vital importance when most local people have already christened the apartments the council flats. Once again, letters flooded into our local press, and again I have chosen Alan Nyker's contribution, which was reproduced in full with his kind permission. I see from your pages that our green bag service has been suspended because Sefton were having difficulty in gaining planning consent for a rubbish dump. How can this be? Perhaps they should have consulted McCarthy and Stone, who have experienced no difficulty in dumping a load of architectural rubbish on the site of the old council offices. Their new development is without doubt an appallingly nondescript mishmash of styles, which is totally oversized for the site and out of character with the environment. It seems to be an, un an unhappy mixture of Hacienda, Georgian and Mock Tudor with elements of Walton Jail, which should exist only in an architect's nightmare and not in a prominent position in our town. The site hut, which was once used as a sales office, had more architectural merit. And now that this and the fencing has been removed, even more of the eyesore has been revealed. Trees have even been chopped down, which once mercifully screened the side elevation and the logs sold on the traffic island by one enterprising Philistine. To think we may now have to stop our cars outside this edifice at the proposed pedestrian crossing on Freshfield Road, a corporate bung to Sefton, courtesy of the developers, adds insult to injury when we consider the aesthetic merits and the great potential of what used to occupy the site. This is surely yet another manifestation of the smash em down and squeeze em in philosophy of Sefton planning department, which aims to increase numbers of high rate council taxpayers at the expense of our environment and quality of life. On a positive note, the crossing will be useful for the hordes of newly fleeced senior citizens who have bought apartments to access the village with its charity shops and new swimming pool. Are the developers planning any sort of opening ceremony? I would suggest that they invite Sefton Planning Department, who could point out areas of outstanding design with their white sticks. Speeches by our local councillors would be next to tell everybody of their valuable part in the exercise. And then any new residents who were still awake could join in party games, such as pass the brown envelope and pin the, pin the policy on the donkey. What an event it would be. We are now four years on from this grace, disgraceful episode and the long-awaited pool, which so unwittingly and unfairly became the subject of such controversy, is in the course of construction. But even here, unforeseen problems and prolonged delays continue to dog its progress, as rumours abound regarding the extent of the promised facilities. Meanwhile, the public wait and wonder with the recent knowledge that, in the interest of economy, two of Sefton's existing leisure centres have been closed, just as Formby's nears completion. The Parish Council, the events over many years have given Formby every reason to feel discontented with its position in local government. And when a campaign was launched for Formby to have its own Parish Council, it met with some interest and a degree of enthusiasm, coming as it did hot on the heels of several contentious local issues, 
which had so enraged the community. The final straw being the loss of our council offices. And so, in the emotion of the moment, many signed up to the petition. It was only later, when the full implication of another tier of local government and its lack of power became known, that the prospect looked far less appealing and a counter campaign attempted to point out the futility of such an unnecessary and costly concept. Eventually, and at considerable public expense, a referendum was held in which there was much confusion and also much apathy, with the result that on a small majority of only 2% from a very low poll in which only 25% voted yes and a huge 75% voted no or abstained, Formby found itself with a parish council to be constituted on the 1st of April 2004, perhaps appropriately the same date exactly 30 years before on which Sefton was created, and yet another tax was added to our already burgeoning local taxes. Elections were held to appoint an incredulous 15 new councillors. Formby has just six borough councillors, but from the entire Formby electorate, only 13 persons were attracted to stand. On election day itself, Formby achieved the dubious honour of holding an all-time UK record for the lowest ever turnout, 4.26%, and we now await whatever benefits of what many considered this ill-conceived venture may or may not bring. The Powerhouse. In Formby Remembered, I had mentioned the uncertain future of the Powerhouse standing at the south end of Formby alongside the railway line and surrounded by Greenbelt land. In its heyday, it had provided work for many when the Liverpool to Southport railway line had become the first in the country to be electrified in 1904. Since those early pioneering days of progression from steam, when the powerhouse had revolutionised the railways, it had been an essential hive of industry. But by the 1930s, Railway power had become centralised, thus rendering the building redundant. Its use was transferred to other various business ventures until its final closure in the 1980s, whence it had stood empty and vandalised and was often the site of illicit gypsy encampments. In the 1990s, despite its greenbelt status, developers had shown an interest in the land but had been unsuccessful in gaining the necessary planning permission. Whilst all the time the powerhouse was becoming more and more of a problem and an eyesore as vandalism escalated. In 2003, a local businessman acquired an option on the site for possible housing development should the Greenbelt ruling be relaxed. And a year later, with Liverpool lying only 14 miles away, having gained the Capital of Culture Award for 2008, ambitious suggestions for a cultural centre on the site were being mooted. So once again, the future for the powerhouse and its land still lies shrouded in doubt. But what is very certain is that change is inevitable for one of the last remaining open spaces in Formby. Education. The building boom of the 1960s had seen the arrival of hundreds of young families to fill the vast housing estates of affordable properties springing up all over the district. 
and it soon became apparent that the four original junior schools and the one senior school were totally inadequate to cope with the massive influx. With Formby topping the national birth rate, it was crucial that new educational facilities were to be met, and so commenced the school's building programme, which saw the emergence of seven new schools. Park Road Primary, now the Ravenmill Centre, Formby County Primary, now the Pinefield Centre, Redgate Primary, Freshfield County Primary, Woodlands Primary, St Jerome's Primary and Range High School. The existing schools were also to undergo large extensions with the demolition and reciting of two of the originals, Holy Trinity and Our Ladies in Lonsdale Road and Bullcop respectively. Now, 40 years on from this youthful invasion, times have changed and those youngsters have grown and flown. Property prices have escalated and retirement apartments have proliferated, resulting in the redundancy of schools. Park Road Primary and Formby County Primary have been long gone, but now the axe is to fall on one of Formby's oldest church schools, Holy Trinity, the original school having been established in 1901 and demolished in 1966 after continuing to function alongside its new replacement school, which had opened its doors in January 1962. This being my old school, it is a great sadness that such a once thriving and happy school with its long history should be lost in preference to one of the newer establishments. But regrettably, it may well not be the last as falling numbers dictate the future in an area with an ageing population. Duke Street Park. Between the two world wars, many new roads and houses began to develop on the mass of fields and open spaces in this small farming village. One of Formby's most respected residents, Dr Arthur Barry Sykes, our family GP, could see the prospect looming of housing development on the field opposite his house, Ashurst on Duke Street. And so in 1930, not wanting to be overlooked, he bought the field from the owner, Jonathan Formby, and the tenant farmer, Ephraim Walker, left his Duke Street farm for a period of farming in Orton before later returning to Marsh Browse Farm in Formby. Dr Sykes presented Walker's field as a gift to the Formby Urban District Council to be used as a public park for the people of Formby in perpetuity. At the opening ceremony in July 1935, the park was simply a large expanse of green which later acquired a most picturesque thatched pavilion alongside a bowling green and a small pitch and put area, much later to become the children's play area. Public toilets were situated at both ends of the park. During the 1970s, the thatch of the pavilion suffered a series of arson attacks, which sadly culminated in almost total destruction of the pavilion, and it was decided to replace it with a concrete building which, unlike the thatch, would withstand the mindless vandalism so frequently wreaked upon it. The park became the venue for victory celebrations in 1945, when World War II ended, and the whole village turned out for a huge bonfire and fireworks to mark this joyous occasion. 
Probably the most prestigious period for Duke Street Park was that following the Second World War, when the renowned Formby Horticultural and Agricultural Show, the Flower Show, reached its peak. However, times change, and as Formby continued to grow, the show began to decline, until it eventually transferred its location to the Guild Hall on Church Road, where it still continues in a very much reduced form. When the Formby show relocated to the Guild Hall and with memories of the long lost Formby Gala, a new and popular different event emerged at the instigation of local couple Peter and Jennifer Wright, who launched their annual gala weekend to raise funds for diabetes charities following the diagnosis of their five-year-old son with the illness. Carried out on a truly grand scale, the two-day event includes a huge car boot sale professional fairground rides and a host of other attractions and sideshows, which to date still brings visitors flocking to the park each July to enjoy the carnival atmosphere on offer. Continuing the importance of the park in community life, August 2006 saw the first Churches Together Family Fun Day, which brought such delight to the park in so many imaginative ways as the sun shone down so brilliantly on children, parents and grandparents who reveled in an entirely free day of unbridled joy with face painting, hairspraying, bouncy castle, throwing the sponge, making bird nesting boxes, craft work of all kinds, music and free food and drink for all. Its success led to the decision to repeat the occasion in following years together with a silent prayer for weather to bless the day. And so, looking back over 75 years to when the benevolent Dr Sykes, himself a talented footballer for the local team, made his purchase of a farmer's field for the use of the community in which he lived and worked, could he ever have realised the potential for his gift and of the many diverse ways in which it would be used. His main concern had been to protect the privacy of his beloved Ashurst, but in ensuring that aim, he also secured the future of a very precious plot which has been so central to Formby and its people, and for that we all owe him enormous thanks. Therefore, mindful of his love of football, he would no doubt have been delighted when in 1959 the wonderful Jim Rourke arrived on the scene with his young son Frank to kick a football around the park. Other boys joined in and from that simple act was born the Formby Junior Sports Club which still thrives today as the largest club of its kind on Merseyside with over 750 members and 78 teams and now with Frank in charge following the death of his father in 2006 at the age of 93 having continued to be actively involved almost until the end of his life. As the numbers escalated, Rorke's league, as it became known, moved to the Deansgate Lane playing fields in 1979 and can boast several members to have become professional footballers, as well as the children of some of the most famous names in the game, such as Howard Kendall, John Toshak, Kenny Dalgleish, Phil Neal, Alan Hansen, Steve McMahon, David Fairclough, Neil Ruddock and Steve Staunton. 
So successful is the club that it is worth recording some of its landmarks over the last five decades. 1959, Jim Rourke founded Formby Junior Sports Club. 1961, the first inter-club cup final held at Browse Lane Ground and attended by 900 people. 1961, chess section started. 1973, a few representative teams enter local league. 1977, Jim Rourke receives MBE for services to youth. 1979, Clubhouse opened at Deansgate Lane. 1984, representative teams at all ages enter local leagues. 1990, inter-club section lowers age to 11. 1999, girls football section starts. 2000, mini soccer introduced and the club lowers age to join to reception age group four years old. 2001, extra pitches at Deansgate Lane, allowing all inter-club games to be played on one site and extra car parking spaces. 2001, membership exceeds 750 for the first time. 2002, FJSC receives charter standard status from the Football Association. 2005, FJSC receives the Charter Standard Development Award from the Football Association. 2006, inter-club football teams from reception, four years old, through to year 12, 17 years old, for the first time. Conclusion. Whilst the character of Formby had gradually succumbed to the events of several decades of change, and drifted far from its rural roots, the village area, though also subject to change, had still remained an attractive heartland until 1999, when even our village, once so picturesque, was scarred by the, by the acquisition of a set of traffic lights in its centre, accompanied by the ugliest of metal railings, also very unnecessary when a simple zebra crossing would have more than sufficed. And in one ill-advised action, our unique and lovely village was reduced to mundanity. Most of the old established small shops had long since vanished and the proliferation of charity shops had filled once empty outlets, whilst estate agents, travel agents and banks all rubbed shoulders with the multinationals as the wine bars and restaurants multiplied. The atmosphere was in a state of flux and although there are still a limited number of delightful small shops, they diminish with the years. Thankfully, the large horse chestnut trees still bloom each year and the wide pavements provide colourful displays and continue to welcome the annual art exhibition, making it still a pleasant centre. But today's residents can have no conception of how enormous have been the change over the last 50 years. Since the coming of the railway in 1848, when Formby's population was below 1,000, to the 7,000 it reached with the Second World War, on through the 1950s to 1980s, and continuing throughout the 1990s towards 30,000, and on into a new century, when housing development progressed unabated 
with recent years seeing the demolition of almost every large house which came on the market to accommodate the multiple apartments to take their place. Formby Fields was probably the last example of the old Formby, with its muddy footpath and quaint cottage amidst the trees. But in 2003, the heart was ripped out of it, and in that leafy backwater now stands an extended replica cottage, alongside two gigantic detached houses, so closely packed into the tiny confines of the lane, and hemmed in by the now almost obligatory metal railings. To the old Formby residents, the transformation is hideously obscene, but to the newer ones, it has been greeted with euphoria to now have a perfect surface on which to walk. It is impossible for any of us to have envisaged such seismic change, and of course change will continue. But whatever the future holds, it is sure to be more acceptable to the present community who are far less parochial and can never experience the same degree of nostalgia as the Sandgrounder. However, it will be wrong to consider all to be doom and gloom, as new innovations have revitalised our community in ways unimagined. Perhaps the most notable event came in 1994 with the celebration of the police station centenary, followed the next year by a week-long celebration of the 50th anniversary of the, sec of the end of the Second World War. The following year, 1996, saw the first of the now annual Dickensian Day, in which I was privileged to be one of the small handful who helped the community policeman, Doug Knight, with his brainchild, and which has gone from strength to strength to attract thousands to visitors each Christmas and marvel at the carnival atmosphere in our village, whilst also boosting the local economy. The new millennium also saw a week of community events, culminating in a grand fete in the grounds of the newly restored Formby Hall. And so the growth of Formby has not been the end of a community, as well it might have been, but rather a renaissance, as new residents have integrated to form a new and different community. However, there can be no doubt that my Formby has gone forever and is now just a memory to the few and a mystery to the many. It is perfectly natural and right to look back and to not forget our roots and heritage. But it is also healthy to look forward with hope for the future. We are all privileged to call this ancient Viking village our home and we all have a responsibility to care for it preserve the best of what we have left and ensure that future generations are able to share at least some of the pleasures that were ours. Only time will tell whether we succeed or fail and that of course will be a whole new story. New Formby Poems The Simple Life A simple cottage in a lane A water butt to catch the rain A patch of land to grow the food to satisfy each family's brood. A roof of thatch comprised of straw, rag rugs upon the earthen floor, a door knocked up of slats of wood, a cow close by to chew the cud, an open fire to heat and feed, with just enough for each one's need, some ducks and hens supplying eggs, a wash tub and some dolly pegs, a self-sufficient, simple life, a working man, a homely wife, lots of children running round, 
all helping cultivate the ground. This was the way of Formby folk, whose northern accent softly spoke of country ways shared by them all when a squire lived at Formby Hall. These memories of those days of old are stories great-grandparents told to children sitting at their knee to hand down through the family. Those children now themselves are old and their grandchildren now are told the tales of how life was before when homes were thatched with earth and floor. Village Inns In days when menfolk laboured long for precious small reward, the village inn was all they had and all they could afford. From toiling on the farms and fields or fishing in the sea, their wages earned them just enough to keep their family. No extra cash to splash around, just coppers for their ale and an ounce or two of backy when they'd meet and swap a tail. And this was all the leisure time these simple folk enjoyed. Their lives just spent between their homes and where they were employed. The lifeboat inn in Berkey Lane was one such hostelry where Mary Neal dispensed the goods and hospitality. And further over in Green Lane, there stood the Formby Arms, ideally placed for all those men who worked the squire's farms. And yet another tiny inn was nestled in Moss Side, where many weary labourers would quench their thirst inside. No longer is the village inn the only recompense for working men who dawn to dusk slaved for those hard-earned pence. Now working men collect their wives and dress up smart and fine and drive to some expensive pub for dinner and for wine. Our travellers. Our lives were charmed by visitors from varying walks of life who hawked their wares from door to door who came to grind a knife. Our favourite was the onion man who always took the chance to cross the channel every year and visit us from France. The rag and bone man also came quite often through the year, exchanging goldfish or balloons for what he gathered here. And Annie Fish, who weighed her fish on tiny little scales and sometimes lent out ready cash between her other sails. The pot man, with his basket high, well balanced on his pate, visiting every welcome door to sell a cup or plate. Also cans of paraffin supplied by Mr Peak, who did the rounds of all of us the same day every week. But gradually our village changed and all these tradesfolk stopped as we became suburbia and our village bubble popped. The Onion Man The Onion Man, the Onion Man who came each year from France the onion man, the onion man, the children sang and danced. Togged out in his stripy jersey, his berry on his head, strings of onions around his neck to keep us all well fed. Onions festooned around his bike and ringing loud his bell, he pedalled up and down our lanes, his luscious veg to sell. With sunny smile and gallic charm, year in, year out he came and we looked forward to his trips though we never knew his name. But slowly as the years passed by, our village changed and grew, and our onion man got older, as all of us must do, until these changes brought an end 
to, to those trips across the sea of the onion man we'd grown to love from far off Brittany. Formby's bombs. The target for the German planes was Liverpool's docks, not Formby's lanes. Their bombs, however, missed the spot as one dark night we got the lot. Just 14 miles north of their aim, the bombs rained down to start the flames and quickly through the woods they spread as Nazi planes flew overhead. A blazing stretch of pine woods lit the nighttime sky as they were hit. Those German pilots truly thought they'd wrecked that vital northwest port. But that night they had got it wrong and Liverpool docks stood firm and strong. But then the planes returned again and got another Formby Lane. Bull Cop and what's now Gardner Road were battered with another load. Also Cars Crescent, Chapel Lane and Greyburn Road and Old Mill Lane. But we escaped we but we escaped the worst onslaught as on and on this war was fought and we became a welcome host as Britain's cities suffered most. We opened up our rural doors, had people sleeping on our floors, made lifelong friends in times of woe of those who had nowhere to go. Now all this lies in history, to children just a mystery. But this was real and they should know just how it was so long ago. And the only way that this can be is from the likes of you and me who lived throughout that great mayhem and hand our memories down to them. In 1994, plans for a private golf club at the newly developed south end of Formby have been rejected by Sefton Council on sound environmental grounds. However, the company concerned appealed against the decision, but following an expensive court case, the decision was upheld by the Secretary of State and the developers lost their appeal. The site was subsequently bought by Sefton Council and is now a local nature reserve. Overdevelopment. In 1959 it all began. The start of Formby's great ambitious plan. Kirby, Speak and Skem took over spill, whilst here the private builders built at will. And so Park Road and Briscoe led the way, a fine estate where once grew Sutton's hay. And slowly all the others followed on, till most of all our greenery was gone. The Formby folk looked on quite mystified, saying little though a few were misty-eyed. How could we argue with the powers that be? You just can't win against authority. Years later and in quiet reverie, we recall the scenes locked in our memory. Beneath the houses, elegant and new, we saw the farms and fields and cattle too. And as those faded images smiled back, marsh marigolds we gathered by the stack and watercress from ditches growing wild, we picked with the wildflowers as a child. Those passing years have turned us old and grey, our village quite unrecognised today. And new residents who filled our fields and dikes speak out much louder than we country types. They seek to keep their blessed Formby plot, established on the land they now have got. That land we sandgrounders allowed to die as bricks and mortar rose from earth to sky. 
Enough's enough, they beg with heartfelt plea, concerned about this mad depravity. We've seen it all before, the old folk cry. It's your turn now to stop and question why. Sefton is a very diverse borough, and it was this diversity which had often been the cause of discontent amongst some of its members, which in 1997 resulted in Southport raising the question of breaking away to form a new authority which would include Formby. As attractive as the idea may have appeared, it was never seriously pursued, but it did inspire the following poem. Bootle or Southport? Well over 20 years ago, Ted Heath devised a plan and our MP, then Graham, Graham Page, became his hatchet man. He helped to engineer the change, which lumped us all as one. From Southport down to Bootle Docks, we all became Sefton. We none of us had any choice, despite us saying no. The powers that be knew what was best, and so we had to go. We'd always had 12 councillors on Formby UDC. In Sefton, we had only six, outnumbered totally. And so the downward trend began, swamped by the mighty two. The big boys from the north and south all told us what to do. Our local taxes went sky high, cause we were affluent and we, would, we could subsidize the rest. Our wealth was heaven sent. We watched as every inch of space was sold for building land to swell the borough treasury for all the things they'd planned. As Bootle got the swimming pools and leisure centres too, repeatedly we all were told, there's nothing down for you. Our little village shops closed down, the charities moved in, as two new super stores were passed despite the local din, and those who passed these wondrous plans lived miles and miles away, knew nothing and cared even less for what we had to say. But now how different all things are. We're flavour of the day. With Bootle terrified we'll leave and Southport that we'll stay. And what of us? What do we want? It isn't hard to say. We only want what we deserve for what our taxes pay. But most of all we want to say in Formby's local scene and not to be dictated to as we have always been. Formby Police Centenary. Our policemen had a birthday. Their station reached a stage when they must have a party to mark this special age. 100 years of service through peacetime and through war, taking care of all of us behind their big blue door. So PC Knight decided he'd get us all involved in a week of celebration and some problems may be solved. Through winter into springtime, he beavered with his plans, arranging lots of functions and making lots of fans. He visited the classrooms of all the Formby schools and went into each village shop to tell them all the rules. The kids would paint a poster. The shops would all dress up. Their windows looked Victorian and maybe win a cup. He'd open up the station and let us see the cell where once they locked the prisoners in the time of Sergeant Bell. The policemen would wear uniforms from Queen Victoria's time and would we would see examples of how they fight the crime. 
We'd see again the horses, which once were stabled here, with the mounties in their finery and other fancy gear. The police dogs would be brought here to demonstrate their skill. And on show in the station, we'd see weapons that can kill. There'd be an old folks concert. The police band would perform. Then we'd get to Saturday and take the place by storm. The village would be vibrant, the chestnuts in full bloom. The sun be brightly shining, no sign of any gloom. And that's the way it happened, that glorious day in May, when dancers, singers, shoppers chased all our cares away. So a very happy birthday to those lovely lads in blue. And thank you, PC Dougie Knight. We owe it all to you. 50 years. How quickly 50 years have passed since we were kids at school, collecting shrapnel in the fields and acting out the fool. We watched the searchlights in the sky and saw the Liverpool Blitz, a city battered by the bombs and almost blown to bits. But we were far too young to know the horror of it all as marching troops arrived at camp and we heard the bugle call. Our pounding feet in time with theirs, all marching on parade, the darkness of the shelters where we hid throughout each raid, the wailing of the sirens as the German planes came near, the bombs which caused such mayhem, followed by the glad all clear, the blackout and the ration books, no sweets and no ice cream, the coloured troops with chewing gum, to us were like a dream. For kids, this was normality, the only life we knew. But our mothers longed for victory and for our dads to come home too. Now looking back down all those years, such memories still remain of when we lit the bonfires and the lights came on again. A peace we take for granted, which was won at dreadful cost to the young men of our nation and those kids whose dads were lost. So we must not forget that price a generation paid and cherish well our freedom in the land those heroes made. Our VE celebrations. Our VE celebrations of 1945 had nothing on the weekend of 1995. For 50 years of peacetime and joy for victory, the whole of Formby whooped it up for everyone to see. The children's concert set it off with drama, poems and songs to teach our youngsters history of triumph over wrongs. The 40s dance was in the mood as oldies jived and sang, remembering wartime dances with the barracks army gang. Then Saturday saw the grand parade, the village packed with throngs as cameras clicked and videos whirred to patriotic songs. A sea of red and white and blue beneath the chestnut trees, resplendent with their candles without a hint of breeze. The sun shone down relentlessly from morning until night. The dancers danced, the bandsmen played, and we sang with all our might. The jugglers and the barber shop, the unicycle boy, the guess your form be picture quiz to bring nostalgic joy. To round it off on Saturday night, the police band thrilled us all. With St Jerome's to help them out, we really had a ball. On Sunday, all the faiths combined, remembering the brave, 
in ever grateful thankfulness for the sacrifice they gave. And then at night, the pensioners who'd lived throughout the war enjoyed a well-earned party like they'd never had before. On Monday came the climax of the Victory Concert Show, a kaleidoscope of talent telling how the war did go. 500 happy people inside the great marquee saw something quite spectacular from fun to poignancy. And all this did not happen without ambitious plans and lots and lots of real hard work by lots and lots of hands. So to the British Legion and the cast of every show and all the backroom helpers, enormous thanks must go. But the man who had the vision and saw it all come right was our community policeman, PC Douglas Allen Knight. So from all the Formby people, young, old and in between, we thank him for the best four days that Formby's ever seen. Our Dickensian day. The sound of carols fill the air, fine voices raised on high, the strains of brass accompanying as all the folk pass by, the swish of ladies sweeping skirts, black toppers for the men, and urchin boys with grimy face, just like it was back then. Charles Dickens walked amongst us all, twirling his regal cane, while handbells rang in harmony, uncaring of the rain. The Southport Swords great Morris team, with bells a-jingling loud, competed with the clogging girls, attracting all the crowd. The festive stalls down Chapel Lane brought back a former age, as hosts of people all flocked in to turn back history's page. The butcher's roasts, the boy scout soup, the baker's pies and puds, the girl with tangerines and nuts, the children came in floods. Two noble horses, big and strong, dragged Santa on his sleigh to wave and shout and ho, 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 prepared for Christmas Day. And as the evening darkness fell, the happy festive throng all gathered round the Christmas tree and raised their voice in song. And as the day had first begun, it ended just the same, to celebrate our Saviour's birth and praise his holy name. Our football ground. For very nearly 80 years, we've had a football ground, superbly centred in Browse Lane, where football skills abound. Throughout the years, the pitch has seen some very famous names who grace the hallowed turf in style in marvellous football games. But that was all long, long ago when our great football team were heroes to the villagers who through the gates would stream. And all this was made possible when Jonathan Formby allowed his land for, public, for football use in perpetuity. Now his descendants own the land in exile from their roots, uninterested in Formby life, the ground or football boots. And sadly, so it seems to us, no one could care a toss about the old man's solemn pledge or what will be our loss. And though we've always played the game, we find it very hard that when we think we ought to win, we're shown that bright red card. Happily, through the generosity of the Moores family, 
the Freshfield Foundation, who purchased the ground, the crisis was averted and the club relocated to near the Down Holland Brook. Freshfield Roundabout Garage. Way back in 1938, our bypass was laid down to speed the route from Liverpool to Southport Seaside Town. And with it came the service needs for petrol, oil and air, which led to Isaac Buckley's plan to build his garage there. The Freshfield Roundabout Garage strategically was placed to fill the Ford and Morris tanks as the bypass road they paced. Until the German Luftwaffe, one dreadful wartime night, let fly a high explosive bomb on the Freshfield garage site. Amazingly, no one was killed. The garage, though, was gone. But one day it would be rebuilt and life would carry on. And that was how it all worked out. Another garage grew, expanding with the passing years as Formby expanded too. Through the days of Freddie Allen, with petrol at four and six, to the escalating prices that modern times would fix. Now the garage comes full circle, demolished once again. This time high-powered businessmen and not a German plane. And risen from the dust and bricks, a grand oasis came to satisfy the every need the motorist could name. Light years from that Freshfield garage, once Isaac Buckley's dream, stands the futuristic vision of a petrol company's team. In 1999, government plans threatened the reduction of our full-time fire service to part-time. Overwhelming public and council opposition eventually saw the proposal dropped. Our fire service. My dad was once a fireman back in 1946, but that was not his proper job from 8am till 6. You see, we had no full-time crew, but only volunteers who were on call if fires occurred in those past post-war years. And in each volunteer's house, a warning bell was placed, which belted out a piercing ring when emergency was faced. In case the men were not at home, the air raid siren wailed and men would leave their work or club and to the station trailed. Some came on bikes or tractors then or ran with racing legs to the station by the factory where they packed the crates of eggs. And each man got a call out fee, the princely sum, five bob. Their training was one night a week when they'd finished their main job. Then Formby grew and the station moved. We got our full-time crew, professional firefighters now, expert at what they do. Full fire protection round the clock, paid by our council tax, the same as every other town, but now faced with the axe. And though it's not quite like my dad, they plan no nighttime shift. Once more our men will be on call, but just Formby, get my drift. Yes, again we're being targeted to lose what bit we've got, to save some dosh to benefit another Sefton pot. Enough's enough, our firemen stay, through daytime and through night. We need them and we pay for them, their service is our right. 
Two Minutes, Formby, 11th of November, 2002. They gave their all that we might live, young men in the prime of life, the living hell of two world wars, unimagined battling strife. Never forget their sacrifice, if only one day each year, when we keep two minutes silence, grateful for all we hold dear. So on the dot of eleven, the bustling village fell still. Bowed heads remembered the fallen in the sunshine's autumn chill. One minute into the silence, a girl and a man strolled by, ignoring the silence around them and those with a tear in their eye. She was a girl in her twenties. He was about 45, selfishly uncomprehending. No thanks that they both were alive. For those names on our war memorial all paid the ultimate cost. Not one returned to his village, much more than two minutes they lost. And whether the Somme or the desert, we'll never repay the debt to those who gave us our peacetime, which is why we must never forget. Our local elections. Election time is coming round and that means we should vote and put in power someone we think will listen and take note of all the things which matter most to us who pay the tax, which every year gets more and more. So here then are some facts. Let's start with our flooded roadways, leaves blocking all the drains, no gangs of men to sweep them up or tidy up the lanes. Those roads with neat grass verges too, just look a dreadful sight when some cowboy on his mower flings rubbish left and right. We needed a zebra crossing to traverse Chapel Lane. Just a simple zebra crossing in keeping with the lane. Instead, we got great traffic lights and ugly railings too. And 40,000 smackaroos went sailing down the loo. Then the council offices shock to sell the whole bang lot against the public's wishes for the best asset we'd got. Such blinkered views and arrogance spurned thousands here that care, who proffered good alternatives, which all of us could share. Next came the promised swimming pool and traffic problems too. No consultation for the route with plans just bulldozed through. And though the pool's been funded by the Moores Foundation plan, we've still to raise a whopping sum to manage Sefton's plan. And lastly, the parish council, a worrying debate with fears of more bureaucracy to simply duplicate another tier of government without a guarantee that anything will really change in the services we see. And all these things have come about because those we voted in care more for party politics than the place they all live in. And how that's ever going to change is difficult to say, but fresh new blood would be a start when we vote on polling day. Formby Fields. Once there was a cottage in a shady leafy lane, beside a dusty footpath turned muddy with the rain. An ancient sylvan idyll with every kind of tree, the home of birds and squirrels, 
a joy for all to see. A ditch along the footpath drained excess rain away and children fished for jack sharps in times of yesterday. But that was all so long ago before the mushroom farm when Formby was a village enchanting in its charm. The cottage days were numbered when the owner sadly died. No more the well-kept gardens, no more the countryside. Now Frog Lane's gone forever in the madness of the age where progress is the master and railings are the rage. A spanking brand new footpath, so soulless and so bland, the pride of our officialdom to them superbly grand. And only bricks and mortar now dominate the lane, where once a dusty footpath turned muddy with the rain. All the same to the tune Amazing Grace, Churches Together in Formby is an active ecumenical group which encourages church unity within our community. The following poem was sung as a hymn at the combined service in Our Lady of Compassion Church in Holy Week, 1994. We all are individuals. We've all a different name. We all have varying kinds of faith, and yet we're all the same. We all believe in just one God, and that his son became a human like the rest of us, to show us we're the same. And as he led his ministry, he cured the blind and lame and showed his deepest love for us so we could be the same. We know he died upon the cross to save from sin and shame a people so divided who could be all the same. And with his resurrection, his triumph we proclaim that black or white or rich or poor to him we're all the same. And through the Gospels we have learned the reasons why he came and why we ought to follow him and try to be the same. So joining all together, united in our aim, he'll bind us ever closer, for he knows we're all the same. The Sefton Mayor. Once for me had a chairman and Bootle had a mayor. And so did Sunny Southport, each with a town hall there. And then we all were Sefton, with just one civic head. And all these little boroughs joined a bigger one instead. So we became united with a comprehensive mayor, representing all of us and mingling everywhere. A brand new chain of office was needed to define the new created MBC in appropriate design. This splendid badge of office made of silver and of gold enhanced the mayoral finery of those who office hold. And now our mayor resplendent in his flowing robes and chain looks a fitting representative to greet the royal train. For we've had royal visits and civic dignitaries galore bringing kudos to our borough and glory to our shore. And the Lord Mayor of the borough could be you or could be me if we became elected to serve the community. So be a local councillor, a pretty thankless job, always in the firing line and at the mercy of the mob. But if you somehow do survive and stick it out for years, you one day might become Lord Mayor and well deserve those cheers. In March 1996, 
the entire country was shocked at the tragedy of Dunblane. And though the following poem has no connection whatever with Formby, I am including it as a personal indulgence as I was so moved by the events that I would like to include it as a reminder that just like Hillsborough, Dunblane touched the hearts of us all and will never be forgotten. Dunblane. The crispness of the winter's day, the laughing children's sound, the crunch of footsteps off to school upon the snow-clad ground. All ushered in the school hall, Jim, these five-year-olds skip round. Bright eager faces thrill to see the magic snow-clad ground. Each new experience of play, this PE class they'd found, in safety from the ice outside upon the snow-clad ground. Excitement in their innocence, crushed by an evil sound, as through the door burst wickedness in from the snow-clad ground. A messenger from Hades came, who Lucifer had crowned, and slaughtered all those innocents who'd loved that snow-clad ground. In mad deranged insanity, the murderous gunshots sound as sixteen tiny hearts are stilled beside that snow-clad ground. Unspeakable depravity that left a nation drowned beneath the tears of disbelief all round that snow-clad ground. The whole land weeps in shock and shame, a minute's silence bound the hearts and minds of all the world who saw that blood-soaked ground. And sixteen families' lives are wrecked. No greater grief is found. Those tiny souls now rest in heaven, not neath the snow-clad ground. My final poem is a tribute to Muriel Sibley, whose death in 1993 was a great loss to Formby. Her generosity and encouragement was instrumental in starting me on my journey into print with the combination of her drawings and my poems, and I shall always be grateful to her. Muriel Sibley, second poem. She came in 1949 with her husband and son Paul to a place she'd never heard of and didn't know at all. From the top of Formby Station Bridge, she saw banks of daffodils and the pine woods standing to the west, shielding our sandy hills. And she knew in that first moment that she loved us right away and never stopped that love affair until her dying day. She found their dream home in Browse Lane and her adventure then began exploring all our lanes and fields and how the ditches ran. She talked to all the old folk and learnt about our past and delved into the history books and local facts amassed. She saw our landscape changing as the building firms appeared, but she got there first and captured it before it disappeared. She cycled round our village, recording every scene, the farms, the shops, the shore, the life, over every inch she'd been. Through the fifties and the sixties, when our village blew apart, she quietly kept on painting, producing brilliant works of art. Her art shows and her slideshows of a gracious lady's skills, created untold interest, illustrating planners' ills. And so she still continued, almost until the last, 
giving pleasure in abundance with her pictures of the past. And all this lifelong talent she used solely just for us. No thought of personal gain or wealth, no outward show or fuss. And now she sadly left us with a massive gaping hole that never ever can be filled by any other soul. But she's also left us memories and a priceless treasure chest of the finest record in the land of a place she loved the best. Postscript. The success of the green bag scheme became a pointer towards the government's ever expanding mission for waste recycling and the decision was made to replace all Sefton's plastic bags with wheelie bins. It was a decision supposedly made as the result of a questionnaire to the public, which few seem to recall ever seeing. However, the plans were announced to take effect from June 2007, amidst concerns of those unable to handle the larger bins or those with limited access to the rear of their properties. Most people are aware of the importance of recycling and Informby have been praised for their efforts. But strong opposition has been shown towards the wheelie bins on sound financial, hygienic and even environmental grounds, which even at this late stage deserve serious consideration before the plan is implemented, if only for the sake of the adverse visual impact of such bins, which in many cases will adorn the frontages of homes. The present system has worked efficiently and well to overall satisfaction and with the provision of extra plastic bags could continue to do so at far less cost than that proposed. The powerhouse. The degenerate state of the powerhouse was eventually resolved when legal orders were issued for a mammoth cleanup of the site involving major structural and demolition work by the owners Ovendon Investments Limited based in the Cayman Islands. The plan would appear to indicate future residential development to be an ever more likely prospect and therefore the end of the site's greenbelt status. Formby Pool. An announcement was finally made that long-awaited swimming pool was to open on Saturday, January the 27th, 2007, three years behind its scheduled date and over 30 years since its original inception. It was made clear that the pool, which will also contain a gymnasium and a cafe, is not a, le a Sefton Leisure Centre, but is under the care and administration of the Formby Pool Trust. Churches Together in Formby held possibly its most ambitious community event in Formby Village at 11am on Saturday, December the 16th, 2006, when the greatest story ever told came to life in the form of a nativity play with a cast of over a hundred. A 45-foot articulated lorry formed the inn and stable at the Elbow Lane end and the action took place along the length of the village which had been closed to traffic. The dialogue had been pre-recorded and all actors mined to the soundtrack, making every word audible to the throngs of people lining both sides of Chapel Lane. Sheep, horses, goats, a donkey called William and a beautiful two-month-old baby added realism to the spectacle with the stunning appearance of the angel Gabriel on the overhead balcony of Grant's wine bar. Quite superb and a most fitting start to Christmas 2006 
and yet another example of the great community spirit that prevails in Formby. Postscript 2019. Since the first edition of this book in 2007 and its following reprints, many changes have taken place in Formby and it would seem apposite to add a brief footnote of some of those changes over the past 12 years. Housing development has continued on a truly unimagined scale, including encroachment of the green belt and a total of over 1,000 more properties have been built or are being built at the present time. Predictably, the powerhouse in its dilapidated state has been demolished and replaced by over 100 new houses. Less predictably, across the railway line and behind Andrews Lane and the cycle track to Hightown, hundreds more houses are in progress. Whilst further inland in Little Alka, opposite the old lighthouse cafe towards the Formby Bypass, 400 plus dwellings are to appear on land once designated floodplain, but which quite miraculously is no longer so. At the north end of Formby on Greenbelt land beyond Deansgate Lane towards the Woodvale airfield, 300 plus houses have received planning approval despite enormous public protest. Serious genuine concerns regarding the local infrastructure were identified. Doctors, dentists, schools, water, sewerage, flooding, and possibly the most obvious problem, the sheer volume of traffic on our already highly congested roads. All of these were ignored. It is almost impossible for local governments to not comply with national government directives. However, when there are brownfield sites within the Sefton Borough available for development, why target Greenbelt, created for its vital purpose? Presumably, the answer must be that, that the developers prefer the more lucrative sites of Greenbelt and the residents must face the consequences. A less serious matter, but nevertheless equally important, both environmentally and aesthetically, was the decision of Sefton Council to fell five horse chestnut trees in our village centre in January 2018, on the pretext that they were dying and were a risk to the public's health and safety. It was preposterous and totally unnecessary when all that was needed was proper pruning after many years of neglect. I wrote the following poem which I delivered personally to the Chief Executive of Sefton Council at Bootle Town Hall and with the help of the Formby Parish Council and the Formby people, four of the trees were saved following an independent survey implemented by the Parish Council, which proved all of them to be sound and free of all internal decay. One tree had to be sacrificed, but despite its destruction, just months later and the hottest summer on record, its remaining trunk sprouted new growth, proving beyond all doubt that it was far from dead. And now on its much reduced trunk has been carved the prow of a Viking ship, reminiscent of our heritage. It is a marvellous work of art by a brilliant local craftsman, Simon Archer, but somehow seems a rather incongruous replacement for a natural work of art. Our village trees. For a hundred years they've stood there, majestic and supreme. Enhancement to our village, a true arboreal dream. Through two world wars they flourished, 
growing stronger every day, lovingly trimmed and tended by the powers of yesterday. Then suddenly the bombshell from the present powers that be, who said the trees were dying, they must cut down every tree. Oh no, they're not, we shouted. They've flowered every year, born conquers for the children, and our love for them is clear. Dead branches just need pruning, and they live for years and years. Such haste, no consultation, aroused the public's fears. With just one day to save them, the people all appeared. In pouring rain we stood there and stopped what we had feared. Next day the men came back again, and also so did we, and tried for an injunction and surrounded every tree. There'd been no proper survey, so we got a short reprieve and a statement from the council that all their men would leave. And now we wait and wonder at the folly of it all and hope and pray our trees will stay so proud and strong and tall. We know there is no danger if the dead woods cut away. They'll thrive and grow and blossom for untold years each May. There'll be a splendid legacy for a future yet unborn. Nature's lasting treasures on every waking morn. It was hoped that the four remaining trees would all flourish and survive for many years to come. But sadly, only 12 months after the independent survey and the unnecessary removal of an enormous outer branch from one of the trees by Sefton's staff, it has now been condemned and is to be felled in the near future, leaving just three trees to continue gracing our village street with such splendour each spring. It should be noted that earlier in this book is recorded my opposition to the formation of a parish council solely because of its lack of real power within the borough system and an added expense to the electorate. This still remains, but without its intervention and support, the trees would almost certainly have been lost and full gratitude must go to the parish council. Unfortunately, it has resulted in Sefton Council abrogating all responsibility for the trees and transferring it to our parish council making all future maintenance, insurance costs, etc. its responsibility. Could this be Sefton's ploy regarding any other forthcoming issues it may wish to offload? Like most high streets throughout the country, our traditional village shopping centre has undergone enormous change from the days of 45 small individual private shops selling a wide variety of goods with no cafe until the first one appeared Burns Cafe in the 1950s. The present day sees the small shops reduced to single figures and the eating places and charity shops proliferate with each reaching double figures alongside the empty premises. From the relatively recent past when many of the small shopkeepers were banned from displaying their goods on the pavements outside their businesses by Sefton Council on health and safety grounds and under threat of prosecution the pavements today are arrayed with vast areas of seating for the numerous cafes, wine bars and restaurants, making the village as active at night as hitherto during the day. In an effort to revitalise the daytime village for the local shops, a weekly market was instigated in 2017 to run from March to September. It is early days to record its success or failure and only time will tell.
Another change came in 2017 with the purchase by the National Trust from Sefton Council of the whole of the Formby coastal area, one of the finest shorelines in Britain and the site of several film settings. There will obviously be plans from the new owners who have pledged to care well for this treasured asset. Many difficulties lie ahead, primarily the traffic situation, which during the summer months, and especially at weekends and bank holidays, sees all roads becoming gridlocked. But whatever their plans, they are wished well, and it is hoped that this most precious gem since time began remains in good hands. Formby has always been a very special place and its uniqueness is mirrored by its continuing community spirit, which has in fact increased with its growth. Since writing my very first book in 1987, when Formby at that time had experienced a great deal of change from its not too distant rural roots, who could possibly have envisaged the vast changes which would take place to render our homeland quite unrecognisable in so comparatively a short space of time. Remarkably, Formby still attracts large numbers of newcomers despite its changing face, and maybe it always will. It is not easy to end on a completely optimistic note when today's Formby is so very different, but my hope is that the present pessimism is misplaced and that Formby will still be as special a place for its new residents as it has been for all those before them who lived in and loved the village that was Formby. That brings us to the end of the Joan Rimmer series, The Village That Was Formby. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. Join us next time on Formby Podcast. Formby Podcast is an independent production. The Simple Life. Set to music and sung by Stephen Gerrard. Simple cottage in a lane, a water butt to catch the rain. A patch of land to grow the food To satisfy each family's brood A roof of thatch made of straw Rag rugs on an earthen floor A door knocked up with slats of wood A cow close by to chew the cud Living the simple life How things used to be Fishing and farming were the ways of old for me An open fire to heat and feed With just enough for each one's need Ducks and hens supplying eggs A washed tub and some dolly pegs Self-sufficient simple life Working man and a homely wife Lots of children running around Helping to work the ground Living the simple life How things used to be When fishing and farming were the ways in old form
was the way of form before Whose northern accent softly spoke Country ways shared by them all When the squire lived in Formby Hall These memories of days of old Stories grandparents told To children sitting on their knees To hand down to the family Living the simple life How things used to be Fishing and farming were the ways in old Formby Those children now themselves are old Their grandchildren now are told Tales of how life was before When homes were thatched with an earthen floor Living the simple life How things used to be When fishing and farming were the ways in old Formby That brings us to the end of the Joan Rimmer series, The Village That Was Formby. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. Join us next time on Formby Podcast. Formby Podcast is an independent production. Join us next time when we'll be reading... Viking Village, edited by Edith Kelly. Our thanks to Formby Civic Society for granting us permission to read this. If you have a story that you'd like to share with us or you'd like us to record, contact us on formbypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>